Big Daddy is back and he has big news. He's getting hitched. That announcement elicits all sorts of excitement, but it's short-lived as soon as Blanche learns the age of her soon-to-be stepmommy. Will Blanche and Big Daddy make up? Will Dorothy and Rose be the new Lennon McCartney? Will Sophia ever get a date with a widower? Find out those answers and more in today's episode, Big Daddy's Little Lady. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. It's a beautiful sunny day as we enter the greenery-surrounded home on Richmond Street. In the kitchen, we find a light purple, you could call it pink, but for the sake of the purple law, we're saying purple, and white pinstriped Sophia, going to town on a newspaper with a pen, which of course makes the white undershirt with an oversized sweater vest with a blob of knitted colors in the corner wearing Dorothy assume she's doing the crossword. Nope, she's just finding newly single men to take out. How new? Well, she's finding them as the surviving husbands in the obituaries. That's nothing new. Okay, the dating part maybe, but not the obit. The first one documented comes from 59 BC in ancient Rome. In that obituary, did they say anything about the cause of death? That old one? Oh, I don't know. I didn't see if it was like legible or anything. Mm, <laughs> That's really funny. Be squished by a chariot. <laughs> Well, Dorothy is just appalled that her mother would stoop so low as to be a rebound. But hey, somebody has to take advantage of the early bird special at the Hojo's. While the 1636 proverb about the early bird getting the worm is about early rising, the early bird special has become synonymous with older people who get up early to get a cheap breakfast or go to bed early and get a cheap dinner. Funny enough, the early bird special didn't actually originate with food. According to Eater.com, it's a summer clothing ad for a sale from 8 a.m. to noon in 1904 that was the first early bird special. It wasn't until the 1920s that the offer of cheap dinners came around. This was due to prohibition, when restaurants needed to find ways to attract families since they couldn't serve alcohol. So they offered discounted meals for those that wanted their suppers around 5 p.m. I'm not force-feeding myself a steak at 4.30 to save a couple bucks, I'll tell you that! <laughs> After pouring a glass of the house's most cherished liquid, orange juice, Dorothy starts to have a seat at the table when a matching light blue cardigan and shirt with tan pants donning rose comes in with her own part of the newspaper, which she asked Dorothy to read. Taking a gander at what's been placed in front of her, Dorothy's confused as to why Rose would want her to know a fake doctor was arrested after being found to have been a produce manager at a convenience store. Well, that's not the interesting part. Although, it kind of is. Like the case of 18-year-old Malachi Love Robinson, who posed as a doctor in, you guessed it, Florida. He was arrested in 2016 and served two years for his false representation. But just this last January, he was arrested again for fraud after stealing nearly $10,000 from the company he worked for. So, lesson learned. 
Finally, Dorothy finds the article Rose really wanted her to see. That the Miami retailers, or what sounds like their local chamber of commerce, is hosting a songwriting contest to boost tourism, wherein the winners will receive a $10,000 prize. Somebody call that Dr. Love. This reminds me of the new tourism treat given to us by Los Angeles. Coco, you actually brought this to my attention. Can you speak on it for a moment? From what I remember, the artist who did the Obama Hope poster, who I think's name is Shepard Ferry, Mm -hmm. was paid an ungodly amount of money to redesign the logo for Los Angeles, I think, so they could come back after the the pandemic that we're still in. (laughs) And when you see it, it's a really, it is a cool font. And it says Los Angeles, but that's it. That's all it says. Yeah. It's like a little bit of a sunrise or sunset behind it and then flowy. And everyone's like, oh, it looks like Miami, which how is that helpful to Los Angeles? It looks like something you could just buy on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, my God. Yeah. In a just one of those hundreds of stores they have (laughs) there. A beachfront T-shirt shop. Yeah. When Rose shares she'll be entering the contest, Dorothy is rather unsupportingly shocked. Rose won't tolerate her doubt, so she proves she's got the stuff by sharing she was the writer of her school's fight song, Onward St. Olaf. Fun fact, there is a song called Onward St. Olaf, but it's for St. Olaf College, and it was written in the 1920s. However, the lyrics aren't that much more advanced than Rose's Go, Go, Go. The lack of depth in Rose's lyrics makes Dorothy a little concerned about her ability to write the winning song for the contest. That's when she gets an idea. Before sharing it, though, she takes a detour to confession land, telling Rose that back in high school she used to do some casual poetry writing. With Dorothy framing her poetry writing days as a confession, Rose assumes she's kind of embarrassed about it. She even confirms she understands why she would do such a thing. She was too tall and dateless. Ignoring the jabs, Dorothy corrects herself. No, you're saying you're good with music. I'm saying I'm good with the words. Let's team up. If I were to discuss favorite songwriting teams, I would obviously start with Lennon-McCartney. But the showbiz gals start with the theater, of course, by mentioning the beloved pair Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein. Through the 40s and 50s, they created the music for some of the most celebrated musicals of all time. Some of their best known are Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, The King and I, and The Sound of Music. Their work won them fame, fandom, and accolades, including two Grammys, two Pulitzer Prizes, 15 Oscars, and 34 Tonys. You know, back in my high school days, I was in a band. You may have heard of them called Tony, 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 Tony. We broke up over creative differences. Each Tony had an exclamation point after their name, and I thought my name should have a question mark. So it will be Tony, 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 Tony. In hindsight, it was not my best decision. Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel were the cool, calm folk stars of the 60s. They weren't quite beatniks, and they weren't quite hippies, and their music wasn't quite rock or roll. Think of them as the radio head of the hippie era, for the more sophisticated taste. They both went on to have success after breaking up, Paul Simon more so with his hits like 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, Call Me Al, and Crotochrome. But their solo careers could never match the magnitude of their sweetly harmonized hits like Bridge Over Troubled Water, The Boxer, and Mrs. Robinson, which was part of the Simon and Garfunkel created soundtrack for the hit film, The Graduate. (laughs) 
What's that you say, Mrs. Robinson? Joe to Joe has left and gone away. Fun fact, and one I should tell my friend Mel, host of the music podcast, Misheard Lyrics, when he says, and here's to you, Mrs. Robinson, Jesus loves you more than you will know, as a youngster who was aware of the scandalous storyline of The Graduate, wherein a young Dustin Hoffman becomes enamored with an older woman, played by Anne Bancroft, and things get messy. So I, of course, thought the words were, and here's to you, Mrs. Robinson, she's a slut more than you would know. Back in the 1950s, Sherry Lewis, a ventriloquist and puppeteer, made her first major appearance with her would-be famous sock puppet, Lamb Chop, on Captain Kangaroo. Her love of performing came from her Lithuanian immigrant parents. Her father was named the official magician of New York City in the 1920s. While she had television appearances as an actress and multiple gigs with Lamb Chop, she was best known nowadays for her show, Lamb Chop's Play Along, which aired on PBS in the 90s. Sadly, Sherry passed away in 1998 after complications from cancer treatment. I would like to tell you a secret, so come here. This? It, no, 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 please let me say it. I want to tell. Okay, darling, go ahead, tell. This is... This is not just this sing-along like all them other sing-alongs. Coco, you have feelings about Lamb Chop? The puppet always bothered me. And I didn't know, as a kid, I just didn't like it. It was not for me. Like you didn't know what was happening? You're like, why is this creature talking? No, it was just like, why Why am I watching a puppet show? Uh. I'm better than this. <laughs> There's photos of me, I think when I was five or six, and my parents took me to a place called, I think it was called Bob Barker's Marionettes. It was in L.A., and there's photos of me, and it was just like they had marionettes and puppets there. And there's just like photos of me with a little plastic crown on my head, and I'm just sitting next to puppets, like, uh. <laughs> with a bunch of kids, seriously, I do not remember ever knowing <laughs> who are these children next to me. So it sounds like maybe your feelings about Lamb Chop come from a darker place in your childhood. I want to be like with the Muppets. They're Muppets, and they're like, you're never confused. Mm -hmm. That's a Muppet. It's like a living Muppet. If I met um, Kermit the Frog, I would probably start crying. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see the hand going up Lamb Chop's uh, cloaca or whatever she's got. <laughs> it's true. And she didn't have eyes. Also, I didn't like her Sherry Lewis's hair. Oh, her big curly red hair? Mm -mm. I didn't like that. I didn't like Richard Simmons's big curly hair. <laughs> It just the ninety or the eighties were a tough time for you. I, I mean, in so many ways, <laughs> hair hair was the least of them. Celebrity hair, and then, issues. and then hair. Well, hair became a problem in the you know mid two thousand. That's true. And it started to fall. While Rose is hoping she gets to be as silly and lovable as Lamb Chop, Dorothea is left wondering just how much money it would take to get her hand up Rose's skirt. As they are both left to ponder such a graphic image, a stunningly sexy, nearly nude-colored nightgown and robe combo sporting Ellen comes bursting in. I mean Blanche. Her robe is the same from her chicken performance in Isn't It Romantic, but the nightgown is a new one with ruffles in the middle. Before all the good mornings are said, Rose excitedly shares the news that she and Dorothy are entering the contest. Blanche is appropriately excited, even a smidge jealous, as songwriting was something she always thought would be fun. But just like poetry, she was just too busy slutting it up to really refine her writing skills. 
When the phone rings and Dorothy answers, we learn it's the Big D on the other line. That's right, Big Daddy. As Dorothy signs off with a bye-bye, Big, she hands the phone to Blanche, who is just tickled to death to hear her daddy is called. And he's not just calling to say hi, or to just win her over with meaningless compliments. He's called to say he'll be there at the end of the week with a big surprise. Continuing to express delight over her daddy coming to town, Blanche is shut down when a distraught Sophia enters the room. Her planned date isn't available to go out with her Friday. No, not because he's bereaved, but because someone moved in on him faster than Sophia. What can you say? Life's short. It's a new day, and a potato sack adorned Dorothy with saggy boots that look like her flesh is melting has come in the door to ask Rose, who is pretty in pink at the piano in her fuchsia cardigan and periwinkle undershirt, if she was able to put music to the lyrics she had left for her. Well, she sure has, and Dorothy is loving it after only hearing a few notes. Ready to sing along to the tune, she asks Rose to take it from the top, which just means to start at the beginning. Or at least that's what I'm hoping, and she isn't referring to her own top, one that we're now seeing up close, one that has buttons going down, but not in the middle, just off to the left a little. Along with the button placement from the casual chic chef line, there's also an oversized collar that's been laid upon the partial zebra pattern triangle that decorates from the collar to almost her belly button. I know that explanation sounds bad, but trust me, the actual shirt is much worse. Feeling cheeky when Dorothy asks her to tickle the ivories, Rose literally tickles the piano. Tickling instruments isn't anything new. Phrases.org cites writings that featured lutes in the 1500s, violins and guitars in the 1700s, all getting their tickle on. Sad fact, it's because up until the 1970s, piano keys were made of ivory that the term applied to pianos. Luckily, there's a ban on the ivory trade, and while poaching still happens, pianos are no longer a large contributing factor. The phrase even inspired song titles, like the ditty you're hearing now, Tickling the Ivories, written by Wally Hartzer in 1913, performed by Joanne Castle. Tickling herself by tickling the ivories, Rose gets distracted from the work at hand. It takes Dorothy's stern request followed by a death threat to get her back on track. Singing the lyrics she wrote, Dorothy is confused when she sings, Miami is nice, so I'll say it twice, followed by saying it two more times instead of the logical one more time. But Rose has a good point. For the music to work, she needed the third line of Miami being nice. But that's thrown off the meaning of the lyrics. Rose has a perfectly acceptable replacement. Instead of saying twice, say thrice. Which, if you really think about it, could have worked. And heck, the use of thrice might have made it stand out. This exchange has become one that the Golden Girls community is quite fond of. Who the hell says thrice? It's simple. Anyone wanting to say three times but sound fancy. Also, anyone who is into rock music from the early 2000s, there's the band Thrice, who is still releasing music and have a song that could have been used in the Henny Penny play, The Sky is Falling. Fun fact, interuterine is not only part of the name of a Facebook group I've come to thoroughly enjoy, it's also any part within the uterus, a.k.a. the womb, fallopian tubes, cervix, and vagina. And no, it shouldn't be used in a song about Miami or anything else, really. Rose still gives it her best effort. Coming out of her room is Blanche in head-to-toe teal in a dress with a very similar design to that of the outfit she wore to the funeral home. She asks, 
No, she demands for Dorothy to give her a whiff. Dorothy's not interested, as that's an act she reserves for her milk only. Smelling milk is actually a recommendation by experts to help with food waste. Annually, the average American family throws away about 250 pounds or a third of the food they have at home. A big source of that waste is expiration or sell-by dates. Baby formula is the only food legally required to have a date on it. As someone who has professionally cleaned out fridges and gross foods for decades, I can tell you, if the food looks okay and it smells okay, it's probably okay to eat. So don't always go by the date. Smell that milk and use it if it's still good. As for a perfume's shelf life, it depends on the quality and quantity. If you have a cheap, lightly scented perfume, it probably won't last very long, a few years. But if your perfume is stronger, you could get a good 10 years out of it. It reminds me of a story Sarah Paulson told recently on The Colbert Show that while she was prepping to play Marsha Clark on the O.J. Simpson story, she found the same perfume Marsha wore, wanting to get as in character as possible. But everyone on set hated the smell, but she was like, too bad, I'm here, I'm Marsha. Sarah later found out that the perfume she had bought online as a match was actually very old and had gone bad, leaving an ammonia or urine-type smell. So maybe Marsha's perfume wasn't so bad. Speaking of going bad, Blanche's looks, according to Rose, that is, if she's only 41, which is what she claims to be after saying her 21st birthday was only 20 years ago. With a ding-dong at the door, it's open to reveal the third-place winner of the Miami Colonel Sanders Lookalike Contest, a.k.a. Big Daddy Part 2. After the passing of Murray Hamilton, Big Daddy's character was replaced with David Wayne. Before his passing in 1995, he earned over 130 acting credits. David only had two roles after the Golden Girls before retiring in 87. Before that, going all the way back to 1940 with his first role in Stranger on the Third Floor, he went on to be in shows and movies such as Trapper John M.D., The Love Boat, New Heart, Murder, She Wrote, St. Elsewhere, Eight is Enough, Dallas, Phyllis, The Apple Dumpling Gang, Gunsmoke, Hawaii Five-0, Mannix, Night Gallery, Three Faces of Eve, A Bob Hope Special, The Frank Sinatra Show, and The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He was also well-known for his portrayal as the Mad Hatter in the 1960s Batman series. Hey, Tommy. Jerks, you sound like the Joker or the Puzzler or even the Riddler. Those phonies! When Big Daddy 2.0 catches a glimpse of his daughter, the flowery idioms come a-pourin' out. His sap continues when Sophia, wearing her favorite rainbow-checkered house dress, enters the room. She'll need those same walkin'-through-the-bull-poo boots from his last visit to survive the hyperbolic flattery. And no, she's not Sophia Loren. Sophia Loren is an Italian queen. Getting her start as an extra when she was a teenager in film school, she soon got the lead role in Ada in 1953. As they say, the rest was history. She went on to be the first actress to win a Best Actress Oscar for a non-English role. While her fame as an actress was mostly due to Italian films, her robust career was celebrated in America because of her robust bust. She was a bombshell, sex symbol, and best of all, she was known for her Italian cooking and attributing her banging body to pasta, saying, everything you see, I owe to spaghetti. Now a thousand feelings grab my heart while I'm holding this wonderful statue. And uh, words are very difficult to find for me and to express it all in this wonderful moment in my life. So 
I'll try to revert in my native language and say simply, grazie, America. Thank you. Have you seen that photo of Sophia Loren and Jane Mansfield? Jane Mansfield is one of my all-time favorites. And she's Sophia Loren like uh-huh. sitting at a table and Sophia Loren's like looking down at her cleavage. Yes. I love that photo. I had that on my wall for a while. Oh my God, that's great. It's one of my all-time favorites because I love Jane Mansfield, which is, um, what's her Mariska name? Mariska Hargitay's mother. That's right, Mariska Hargitay's. died in a tragic car accident. Yeah, not to totally tangent, but the little bar at the bottom of a trailer on a semi-truck is called a Mansfield bar because they came into... They were made as a safety measure after her car accident that killed her, in which Mariska was in the car with her. But, yes, there is a picture of her, and she's leaning over, and Jane Mansfield had some big old naturals in that little dress. Fantastic. And Sophia Loren is looking over and just kind of has this face of disgust. And I don't know if she just happened to be looking over or if if someone caught that moment, but it's a great, that's an iconic photo. Sitting betwixt Blanche and Sophia, the thrice of them have a seat on the couch. Except it's not the thrice of them, since thrice is reserved for a number of times, not as a replacement for just the number three. Moving on from Rose's vocabulary lesson, Blanche is antsy to hear Big Daddy's big news. Although, I'm surprised she's not more hesitant. Last time she saw him, he had a big surprise, and it was that he had sold everything to become a country star. This time, the news is more personal. Big Daddy's been spending time with Margaret Spencer, a local widow he was introduced to at a friend's wedding. They've become quite fond of each other. Excited to hear her father is happy, Blanche politely says she'd like to meet her someday. Well, hold on to your butt, Blanche, because that someday is tomorrow, because Margaret is coming to town. The haste is due to the fact that the couple has made plans to get married. The happy news only serves to prove my point— that Blanche is part chicken. Upon hearing her daddy is getting remarried, she lets out a screech that can only be compared to Hey Hey from Moana, played by the hilarious Alan Tudyk. (laughs) Blanche's avian-inspired screech has confused her father as to how she feels about the news. Stepping in, Dorothy can attest to the squeal originating from a place of joy. She's heard it before. Granted, it was under different circumstances that Big Daddy doesn't really need to hear about. But still, it's a good sound. (coughs) After a moment of false coyness, Blanche tells her daddy she's so happy for him while walking into his arms. It's not surprising Blanche is happy for him. Just last week, we saw how desperate she was for Jean to move on. While this new lady won't be a replacement mother, she knows her daddy is happy, and that's all that matters. Just like Dorothy's daughter, Mr. and future Mrs. Daddy were planning on eloping in the Bahamas after swinging by Miami to share the news. But Blanche won't hear of it. A Hollingsworth deserves all the hoopla and hootenannies possible, which you just can't get in the Bahamas. That's why Blanche insists on hosting their wedding at the house. All the girls agree. We'll help out. We'll host. Feeling inspired, Rose even offers to write a song for the occasion, which is quickly shot down. Just as Big Daddy agrees to the plan, the phone rings. Sophia answers it only to hear bad news. Well, she fakes that it's bad news before hanging up and declaring it was actually great news. Her acquaintance, Teresa, has passed away. 
That means her husband is up for grabs and he would make a great date to Ruthless People, a movie neither of them have seen. So it all works out. Ruthless People was a well-received and profitable dark comedy starring Bette Midler, Danny DeVito, Judge Reinhold, and Bill Pullman. I remember watching it multiple times when I was young, but I cannot promise it has held up. Basically, a millionaire wants his annoying wife taken care of, but of course, it all goes awry. She's got rare gems in the safe! Oh, oh Sam, forgive me! What kind of gems? How many? It's a new day and the pastel princesses have arrived. Coming into the living room to sit at the piano that has apparently been sitting in the corner for two years, never being touched, a head-to-toe, if Pepto-Bismol was blue instead of pink, Dorothy, with another shirt with buttons to the side, and Rose with her white pants, floral shirt, and pink cardigan, find Blanche, wearing her own periwinkle shirt and pants set with a dark shirt. With its structure and flow, it's serving as some real businesswoman special, but after I've been bigged. She's in the living room, and the girls want to play her their newest song. I love this scene. I love this episode, but this moment has always bugged me. And I'm not trying to be nitpicky, but I guess that's what happens when everything else is so great, you start to notice the smallest flaws. My complaint here is directed at the timing of Blanche's reaction. I don't know if that was a Rue thing or a director thing, but as the gals sing their song, she butts in so quickly, there's no actual way she could have caught what they had said and called it out. I guess for me, it's just a moment that reminds me that everything was written in a script and it wasn't just created magically, which is okay. I get it. With the rhythm of the music and her input of girls, it all works well. I just wish it was another second before her first girls. And no, M-I-A-M-I does not spell Miami Beach. With each girls that is ignored, Blanche says it louder and gets closer until she's finally right behind them yelling, girls, before pointing out their flaw in her most delicate, hip-twitching southern way. Before there can even be a conversation, Rose throws Dorothy under the bus with, told you we shouldn't have added beach. Annoyed at her lack of contribution, Dorothy tells Rose to come up with something better that rhymes with Miami. Without hesitation, she starts to rattle off some technical options, such as whammy, mammy, clammy, hootenanny, and salami, which is just an accented way of saying salami. Hootenanny comes from the Appalachians, and it's a word that means a casual gathering or hangout. Waiting to meet with the caterer, Blanche leaves the ladies to put on some coffee. After she's gone, the arguments between the musical duo continue. Rose musing she could have done better if she was alone. Dorothy pointing out that when she was alone, all she could rhyme with go was go. Answering the door, Dorothy finds a beautifully red-headed young lady in a dark suit, white undershirt, with an aggressively structured dark blue and black blazer. Welcoming her in, Dorothy assumes the woman is the aforementioned caterer. Earning one of my favorite of Dorothy's responses of, Whoa, is the woman's confession that, no, she's not there for the food, she's the snack. She is the Widow Spencer. She is the soon-to-be Mrs. Hollingsworth. She is young. Getting her start in 1970 as a sex worker in John Wayne's Rio Lobo, 
Daddy's Little Lady is played by actress and television mainstay Sandra Curry. Some of her more than 80 credits have been as Alan's mother in the Hangover series, The Secret Life of an American Teenager, Mannix, NCIS, Seventh Heaven, ER, The Bold and the Beautiful, The Fugitive TV series, Jag, Touched by an Angel, Family Matters, Cheers, Murder, She Wrote, Days of Our Lives, Love, American Style, Three's Company, Magnum P.I., The Odd Couple, Adam 12, Knight Rider, and multiple appearances on Columbo. She was also in some badass sex exploitation flicks like Teenage Seductress. She has the looks, the body, the mind, and the desire. Everything she needs to waste a man. This seductress. This teenage seductress. That girl in there is a cheap tramp. She's deceitful, conniving, dishonest. Now come on. She's in there on your couch. Where is she going to be in the morning? Now, wait a minute. Richie, I've needed you more than you'll ever know. Oh, Jesus. Don't you dare miss Teenage Seductress. The casting of the couple was pretty accurate, as Big Daddy's real age was 74, to the widow Spencer's 40. Hearing the introduction, Rose can't believe the odds. Here is a woman who, on paper, is exactly like the woman Big Daddy will be marrying, except this one's far too young. Right? It doesn't take long for Rose to realize this isn't a coincidence, and to confirm her deduction is Dorothy, with another, whoa. Excitedly coming out of the kitchen, Blanche sees her guest has arrived. As Blanche casually introduces herself with the same level of pomp and circumstance one would reserve for a contractor, Dorothy breaks the news she's actually saying hello to her soon-to-be big stepmommy. Making small talk and hoping to ease tensions, Margaret mentions how bad the traffic was, which was met with an angry Blanche. Just like Rose's emotional tell of a thin lip, Blanche's is all in her voice. The tighter, shorter, and more southern she is, the more pissed she is. It's a simple trick that is so effective. You know she doesn't mean it when she's so glad to hear she got there safely. You know, thinking about my Grammy, I feel like maybe this isn't just a Blanche thing and more of a southern woman thing. Margaret can tell right away the situation is uncomfortable. And shame on Big Daddy! He was the father. He should have explained to Blanche that his betrothed was younger and they could have talked it out instead of Margaret showing up and being fed to the wolves. Blanche's petty nature quickly rears its ugly head, saying they should get their guest a booster seat and chocolate milk, which are things associated with children. Worse than being young, Blanche sees Margaret as a parasite, comparing her to a tick on a hound dog. Ticks are a type of mite that latch onto a host, like a slow-moving dog, and feed on the blood of it. That comparison earns a comparison of its own from Dorothy. Why is everyone talking like Western star and country singer Burl Ives? Burl Ives was a singer, actor, and Oscar winner. Winning for Best Actor in a Supporting Role in 1958's The Big Country, Burl went on to become part of American Christmas tradition when he was the voice of the snowman in the stop-motion classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He went on to release some of the most beloved versions of Christmas classics like Holly Jolly Christmas, Frosty the Snowman, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. 
his music earning him multiple Grammys. Funny enough, he was in the film version of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, where he played Big Daddy. As a folk singer, country singer, and Western actor, it's no surprise he's used as the comparison for the silly way the Hollingsworth family talks to each other. It's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow. Passing by Margaret and Rose on the couch, Dorothy heads to the door, where Big Daddy is waiting to be let in during which we overhear Rose's small talk ability. She's decided to go with the Civil War as a starting point. It was nearly the end of the Civil War on November 15, 1864, when Yankees made their way through Atlanta, a hub for the Confederates, and destroyed it. Buildings, train cars, hospitals, homes, all burned in an effort to cut the Confederate Army off from supplies, forcing a surrender, which came five months later. The Atlanta Blaze was featured in the iconic 1940s film, Gone with the Wind. Using old film sets and painted backdrops, the director actually set a real blaze. Unfortunately, he didn't control it very well, and he accidentally burned other sets being stored, like the huge wall from King Kong. And yes, Rose, Atlanta rebuilt itself after the war. Take a good look, my dear. It's a historic moment. You can tell your grandchildren how you watched the Old South disappear one night. With Big Daddy's arrival, Blanche has some words for him. To remove themselves from the situation, Dorothy breaks her own house and hose rule, letting Rose show Margaret how wild the hose gets when you turn it all the way up, a forbidden act that has been saved for special occasions. Concerned about her daughter's perception of Margaret, Big Daddy asks what she thought. Without hesitation, vicious, accusatory words come flying out of her mouth. The term gold digger has been around since the very early 1900s, used in books about women needing or wanting to marry rich. In the 20s, with films about gold diggers, the term was used most often about women that were chorus line dancers or sex workers. While a relationship based on money isn't always a May-December affair, it is more often thought of or perceived as being such. So with Margaret being younger and Daddy being wealthy, it's no wonder Blanche thinks she's only in the relationship for the money. So what if she is? If Daddy's happy and she's having her needs met, go for it. Live that Anna Nicole life. To reinforce her point, Blanche reminds Daddy his new lover is basically her age. Sure, Blanche. Sure. Trying to find anything to be upset about, Blanche then gets worked up he kept the age difference from her. But he didn't. He just didn't care and hoped that she'd feel the same. Once again, Blanche has decided her father's decisions are foolish and wrong, and she has no problem letting him know that. Before the conversation gets too heated, a chatty Rose and her victims, I mean friends, come back in mid-story. A story about a science experiment of crossbreeding rutabagas and potatoes. Rutabagas are, like potatoes, a root vegetable. Fun fact... Rutabagas are part of the cabbage family, as are turnips, and it's believed rutabagas came to be as a cross between both. So, a rutabaga is a turnip-cabbage hybrid. They're also very good for you. So, go get to plantain. Having more to say, Blanche asks her daddy if they can continue their conversation. Knowing how she feels, he has no interest in hearing any more of her hogwash, so he and his Maggie make their way to the door. Then, right in front of this woman she has known for literally seconds, Blanche starts to tantrum, yelling about how wrong the whole thing is. BD keeps it simple. I've shown you love and respect. I expect the same. And if you can't do that, you're not part of my family. 
Later in the evening, the Nyland Zbornak duo are still chipping away at their song. To have the perfect jingle, they need one thing, a word that rhymes with orange. The childhood stories you heard are true. There are no words that perfectly rhyme with orange. I know, I know, it's hard to believe. However, Lexico.com says the closest word would be sporange, an uncommon word used almost never in place of the longer sporangium, which is part of a fern. Fun fact, there's another word with no rhyming partner, silver. The closest is shivler, meaning a female lamb. Offering cheesecake, an annoyed Dorothy doesn't even engage in Rose's attempt to rhyme orange with cheesecake. When a purple nightgown Sophia comes in, she's surprised to find them in there and not at the piano. Easy to say, but when you're blocked, there isn't much you can do, unless you use the Sophia recipe of tang and a granola bar. If high sugar and calorie numbers help with pooing, then yes, tang would work, but I'm not quite sure that it's known as a laxative. Maybe the fiber of the granola bar would help, but more than anything, that combo just reminds me of elementary school morning snack times. After hearing the unprompted and unwelcome graphic details of Sophia's constipation regime, a distressed Blanche opens the kitchen door and without moving or saying anything, just lets out a fraught huff. She's angry. She's sad. She can't understand why her daddy would want to be with that younger woman. The queen of reality has come to save the day once again. May-December romances, especially where the men are older, are common. To prove so, Dorothy starts to name off a list of older men that have been with younger women. Well, not a list, as the older man in each case is John Derrick. With his father being a famous director, actor, producer, and writer, John Derrick and his good looks didn't have much of a choice growing up in Hollywood. Following in his father's footsteps, John became an actor, starring in multiple films through the 40s and 50s, but he didn't love it, so he moved on to behind-the-scenes work. Only four years his junior, John's first marriage was to Patty Erstoff, a Turkish ballerina. They had two children before John left the family in 1955 to pursue a relationship with the non-English-speaking 19-year-old Ursula Andress, who was 21 years his senior. She became famous as an actress when she appeared in Dr. No, the James Bond film. When John found out she was having an affair with another actor, he threw her out. After their divorce, John moved on to the 16-year-younger Linda Evans. She would eventually be best known for her work on Dynasty, but when they were together, it was the show Big Valley that was paying the bills. Literally. Linda actually used her money to pay for John's alimony from his previous marriage because his directing and photography jobs weren't cutting it. The couple then went to Greece to film the movie and Once Upon a Time, which was filmed in 73 but wasn't released until 1981, under a new name, Fantasies. Another role in that movie was played by 16-year-old high school dropout Mary Kathleen Collins, a teenager that would then have an affair with her 51-year-old co-star. Linda went back home and filed for divorce. John and Mary stayed in Europe until she turned 18 so he wouldn't go to jail for statutory rape. Cute! Once back in the States, John helped Mary create a public persona and get her roles. She was not only in the classic B-movie Orca, she and her husband even worked together producing and directing porn. At 23 years old, the now Bo Derek landed the career-making role in the movie 10. You may not have seen the movie, but you have seen the poster of a young Bo Derek jogging along the beach in a tan swimsuit and inappropriately braided hair. 
Shockingly, that was the end of John and Derek's philandering and divorcing in predatory ways. He and Bo stayed together until he died in 1998. Bo Derek still works and does her charity work to help end the slaughtering of horses, to help veterans, and a cause very close to my heart, protecting sharks. Just have a listen to how loving this man was towards his very young and impressionable wife while doing an interview on The Phil Donahue Show. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I think that, Baloney, I do try to keep her from eating things because I didn't want her to be in the business. She was in the business when I met her. And uh, so I was, I was stuck with that happening. And if, she, if she's going to continue to be in the business, I'd like her to be uh, on an important rung on the ladder, not you know, to be clawing her way up. I personally don't enjoy her when she's heavy. And since she doesn't enjoy me when I'm heavy, but I, I can't accommodate her. I want her to accommodate me. So she, no, I mean, that's laziness. I just, I just can't hold my stomach in any longer. But I don't, I don't bully her. I don't Svengali her. I would, as you would to anybody that you care about, say, look, there's a, there's a pothole, don't step in it, if you see it first. And I've been around you know, I, I was 30 years old when she was born, so uh, I think that I can guide her down the street a little better than she can guide herself. Yes, he is talking about how he restricts what she eats because they don't like each other when they're heavy. Wow, that and statutory rape? What a great guy. Since Dorothy's examples were all from the same person and were from quite some time ago, here are some more contemporary examples. I'm exhausted. I've been hanging pictures all day long, all day. Pictures, more pictures, pictures, pictures. There's a picture. Pictures, pictures. Pictures, picture. I love pictures. Fun fact, that is from one of my all-time favorite Instagram posts ever in the history of videos. It is Catherine Zeta-Jones at home, lounging on a chaise, talking about how tired she is from a day of hanging pictures. Large, ornate, gaudy pictures and paintings. Slowly panning through her house, she's exhaustedly pointing out how she had to tell people to hang her pictures. It is the ultimate celebrity nonsense. For us less exotic folk, age differences are much smaller. According to surveys shared by 538.com, the average age difference in a heterosexual couple is 2.3 years, the man being older 64% of the time. A surprising 13% of relationships have partners that are less than a year apart. For straight and gay couples, the age range changes with age, but for homosexuals, it's at a higher rate. Couples in their 20s have an average difference about two and a half years, but by their 40s, the age difference is closer to seven years. Then there's what's believed to be the relationship with the biggest age gap, which was a Somali man who, at 112 years old, married a 17-year-old. I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum, but that whole situation is its own, oh boy. In an article on Psych Central, a therapist surmises what the draw can be in these types of relationships. It's not just about the pride an older man feels with a hot piece of tail on his arm. It's finding things in each other that they might not get from other people their age. 
If you're a 25-year-old woman, you may be more mature than the men that come up on your dating apps. Far fewer 20-something-year-old guys have plans for the future and careers the way a man in his 40s might. At the same time, that man may have been through a nasty divorce or wants to live a lifestyle not as tied down as one might expect when dating in their 40s. So at first, the relationship can be very complimentary. But the differences and need for space to grow and to change as a person can cause these relationships to face a strain a closer-aged relationship might not. Coco, I kind of agree with Dorothy on this one. Much like Blanche with the younger man, I just wonder how people with big age differences actually get along. For Coco and I, we reference movies and shows and historical moments that even though we're only four years apart, we can still share kind of similar memories. But dating someone that's so much older, it's like trying to relate to your dad or something. What do they talk about? That's what I want. Well, you had your older lady friend. I did. But what was know, that age difference? I forgot. Um, What was it? It was 18. I was 24 and she was 42. So it was 18. Ooh. 18 years. Yeah. I mean, similarly, we both like the same kind of movies and stuff. Like it, that really helped. Yeah. Um, We both like to drink a lot of booze. That and helped. We both like to be taught about the art of lovemaking. <laughs> me more than her. I was. <laughs> Teach me, mommy. That's right. I was a student in her dojo. And her dojo was, you know. Interuterine. Yeah, nothing like that. Where oh, she well, just didn't. Good. She was like, what's that, young person? Right. She was pretty hip, I guess, which is such a cool word to use. <laughs> it makes you <laughs> sound a, hip. She was a hip, hip lady. <laughs> And, she was a hepcat. And bless her for all she did for me. How did you feel, you know, out in public? Did you guys ever talk about your age or was there ever N anything no. about it? We never talked about it, but we definitely had arguments that were about it, but not it. You know, we were definitely fighting about a lot of things. And I think that was the overarching thing was that I was too young and she wanted more than I could possibly Oh, like time. was she at a point where she wanted a serious relationship or like marriage or kids or something? I think she just, I think she wanted to be together and I was just 24, man. Yeah. Sorry. That's the other part of it. Yep. It's probably easier to settle down if someone's paying you money or giving you money or buying you things, but not when there's no money involved. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Try to lock me down. <laughs> And you guys never encountered any kind of comments or anything? Not once, no. Wow. That's pretty cool. I, I think it is pretty cool. Thanks. <laughs> All of the naysaying has Rose on the defensive. Hey, we don't know their situation. Maybe they're so different it actually works out. Just like her friends back in St. Olaf, Ollie and Molly. The silliness of the names reminds Blanche of Billy Joe, Bobby Joe, Betty Joe, and Kathy Joe, characters on Petticoat Junction. Come ride the little train that is rolling down the tracks to the junction. Forget about your cares, it is time to relax at the junction. After the success of the Beverly Hillbillies, the creator went on to make Petticoat Junction. Being based in a rural area and about the goings-on of the townsfolk, it's not hard to see the comparisons of St. Olaf to Petticoat. To give you a better idea of the vibe of the show, there was a spin-off series called Green Acres. I have a confession to make, dear listeners. 
I don't do musicals, so I can't help with the joke Dorothy makes about the St. Olaf play, Hey, That's My Tractor, being the musical version, Hey, Hey, That's My Tractor. I can only figure there's some sort of musical that maybe had a title like that. Please let me know. Gmail us. Back in St. Olaf, Ollie the mayor playwright and Molly the manicurist sex worker crossed paths one day. For only $5 or 22 bucks in today's money, she would, uh, you know, buff other things besides your nails. This tidbit leaves Blanche and Dorothy in shock, while Sophia thinks it's a ripoff. For that same money back home, you could get your nails buffed, you know, your actual nails buffed, coffee, and cookies. So Ollie, who had lived at home for over 52 years, ended up falling for Molly the Squeeze, so they made it official. They were happily married for over 25 years. While that story isn't so much about age differences, it's about differences in general, showing that two people, for whatever reasons, can be drawn to each other. Heck, it could even work out. Blanche is fed up. She doesn't care about the stories, and she doesn't care that the girls think she should lay off. Making her way to the kitchen door, she's decided she's going to find the happy couple and rain on their parade. Attempting to rein her in, Dorothy gives the solid advice of not going while she's angry. Well, too bad. She has to say what she feels. Scoffing at Blanche's tantrum, Rose repeats her, Psh, I have to say what I feel. But then... And just like that, the writer's block is lifted. A tune has come to Rose, and without hesitation, Dorothy chimes in. They know they've found what they're looking for. Coco, have you ever written a song or done poetry? I was afraid you'd ask this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think when I was like 18 or 19, I started writing poetry or trying to. Oh. Kind of just like, I don't know what it's called, but just sort of like free verse, you know, not like rhyming or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just awful. <laughs> It's just awful, and every time I happen to look through, like, my big box of mementos, keepsake stuff, I'm just – I wish that I could die. <laughs> That's a reasonable response. It's very embarrassing. Was it, like, diary style? Sort of, yeah. Sort of like a journal, but, you know, jazzy, man. <laughs> Were you doing it because you're like, I just want to express myself some way? Or were you like, I'll try that? I wanted to express express myself. I wanted to write, and I also wanted to do that because I was a very sensitive 19-year-old boy who was right. around girls for the first time and was like, <laughs> ooh, ooh, the emotions, the oh, my heart rending, oh, the pain. What about you? I know you're, I mean, you're a musical person. I, I know that you've recorded songs for our other podcast. For sort of a holiday thing. That's right. Yeah. I forgot about those. Well, I didn't. They're great. Check them out. <laughs> Gmail us for copies. I wrote part of the first song I ever wrote when I was nine. And it still pops in my head every once in a while. I've never like shared it with anyone. And it was nine. So I'm nine years old. My parents are happily married. I've never seen like major turmoil in a relationship and I write this song about like a guy going away for work and then coming home and calling someone else and calling the girl the wrong name and all this Ooh. and then of course the angsty poetry of of teens I had a class called Americana it was my favorite class ever it was literally like studying pop culture and then we got to make our final be whatever we wanted it to be so I did like this song book that was a poetry book and it's so pretentious and like looking down upon all the people that 
wore Abercrombie and Fitch and all the, you know, it's just like, y'all sheep. <laughs> just angry. angry. And you're like, I want a skater boy. Yes. See you later. <laughs> and but really a proud moment in my life was just about 20 years ago, I got to do some songwriting with Big and Rich, who were or are a country duo. And uh, with the internship I had, we in little groups got to sit around and write a song. Wait, how, how did that internship come about? What was that? Uh, oh, I won a contest. So during the Grammys, there was uh, it was back when MasterCard had the um, the priceless campaign. You know, this, 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 this much money, da, 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 this much money. Seeing your favorite artist, yeah. priceless. So they had one during the Grammys, and it was like, win an internship, go to this website. And I'm like, okay. And you had to fill out a thing of how you would combine education and music. So I wrote this essay, and then of however many people that entered, 50 of us were chosen, and then we got to go to Nashville. Uh, and then of those 50 people, we were all in put, put in little groups, and then we got to work with Big and Rich. And it was funny. It was our group's day to work with them, and we just sat out uh, at the university's, like, um, you know, just courtyard area. And one of the guys showed up with some Crown Royal. And it was just like this moment in the kitchen. We're sitting around the table. We haven't even all like settled. And he knocks over his Crown Royal and he goes, oh, never mind me. And right away, I think it was John. And then Kenny just started strumming and he was like, never mind me. And if I'm by myself with a twisted face, filling up uncomfortable space. And then we all just sat and did it. And then we did have one spot that we all got stuck. And I was like, what about da da da? They're like, oh, great. And that was cool. I've heard it on the radio one time. It was like, oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. <laughs> anyway, so that was like just a very exciting moment and something I cherish in my life. Wanting to get to work right away, Dorothy asks if they should hit the 88s. This is in reference to the 88 keys on a piano. They run out of the kitchen, ready to make herstory. Ooh la la, we're back at a hotel. This time it's Stan's hotel, but with better wallpaper, a lot of furniture, and new art. I think it's supposed to look luxurious, but that was just so hard to accomplish in those days. As much as I hate the blah aesthetic of an Instagram influencer home, I hope at least it will be bearable to look at in 30 years. In the room, we find Big Daddy sitting on the edge of the bed, making arrangements over the phone for he and Mrs. Daddy's honeymoon. Hearing the door open, he assumes it's his betrothed, but it's Blanche. Right away, Big Daddy is defensive. He's not really interested in talking about her after her response. Although she left the house mad, it seems the drive to the hotel calmed her down as she peacefully asks if she can talk to him. Sitting down in the entire living room set in this regular hotel room, Blanche starts to open up about her feelings. She realizes that with Big Daddy's age, he might be worried about who will care for him and who would be a good replacement for his wife and who would make him feel less lonely. Big Daddy agrees to all of those things, but Blanche still can't understand why it would lead to marriage. Describing Margaret with delightful adjectives like bubbly and bouncy, she asks if her interest is a good enough reason to be wed. Uh, hell yeah it is. But it's not just those things for Big Daddy. The love of his life died a slow, painful death. It was so devastating and heart-shattering, he didn't think he could ever feel those feelings again. But when Margaret came into the picture, he started to feel love, and he knew he needed to hold on to it. 
But that wasn't just the story of Mrs. Hollingsworth Big D was telling. It was the same situation Margaret went through with her husband around the same time Blanche's mama passed, just about two years ago. They've both felt pain and loss, but before, they had both felt love. They were just lucky in getting to find that with each other. They didn't come to have a wedding thrown for them or for support. They just wanted her blessing. When Margaret comes into the room, Blanche starts to see herself out. Before doing so, she stops to say her piece to future Big Mommy. Just like Daddy and Margaret, Blanche and Margaret don't have a lot in common, but what they do have in common is the most important. They both love and want the best for Big Daddy. It's many days later. We aren't sure if the happy couple did get married at the house or the Bahamas, but we do know they're on their honeymoon because they've sent a postcard to Blanche, which she's reading to Sophia as they sit on the couch. As happy as Blanche is to hear they're having a good time, Sophia's just surprised he survived the wedding night. Well, since Rose wasn't involved, I think he's healthy enough for sexual activity. While Blanche might be wrong here or there, she is right about people in their 70s and 80s having great sex. Sophia agrees, except that when you're talking about a couple, it should be that they're both in that age range. If she were to be with someone like, say, Tom Cruise, that's a different story. Seeing as Mr. Tom Cruise was only 25 at the time and riding the wave of fame Top Gun had brought him two years prior, yeah, 80-year-old Sophia might become one of our heart attack during sex statistics if she was in that situation. Complimenting her faux daughter, Sophia commends Blanche for handling the situation as well as she has, but she confesses. She doesn't love it, but she wants Big Daddy to be happy, so that's what counts. Well, that and not having to call Margaret mommy. Fun fact, I I mean, not really, it's not really a fun fact, it's just something I noticed. We've had two episodes with Big Daddy, and both have had songwriting plot lines. I wonder if the writers did that on purpose, or if it's just a happy coincidence. Coming in the door to greet the casual Friday-dressed Blanche in jeans and a teal sweater, along with coral pant, pastel top, and white cardigans Sophia, are a bright blue dress-wearing Rose and Dorothy in a yellow dress that can only be described as if someone made a dress using only the saggy neck part of a turtleneck, covered with a knee-length, rusty floral cover. And they don't look happy. When Sophia and Blanche ask how the competition went, well, it wasn't great. The girls did get second place, but they weren't treated very well. Although if they had won first place, they probably wouldn't want the second place people standing in their picture with Anita Bryant, so... Anita Bryant was known for her jingles, most famously for orange juice. Orange juice with natural vitamin C from the Florida sunshine. But then she changed her focus to the gays. She was a huge anti-gay activist, helping to promote Save the Children. Back then, it wasn't from blood-drinking celebs, but from the gays that wanted to adopt. (laughs) She became the face of bigotry and discrimination, even helping to pass a law to allow for gays to be fired and lose housing. So it's funny she would be judging a jingle contest, as she was the jingle queen, but she had fallen so far. She now lives in Oklahoma, or something, after filing for bankruptcy. Good riddance. Crew whoopsie. As Dorothy and Rose make their way to the piano, a boom mic can be spotted in the upper left. Winners or not, Blanche wants to hear the tune. But they're hurt, tired, embarrassed. But with each plea becoming more and more pathetic with a little, please, they finally give in. Of course they want to share their song. They're proud of it, and they should be. 
So with just the smallest nudge, the girls have a seat, ready to take it from the top and tickle those 88s. Not only is their song a great song, I love how, after all of the turmoil of the week, the girls are able to forget about what's bothering them, listen to, and support their friends, including Sophia's adorable grandma Sway on the couch. Standing up, they all gather around the piano together and sing about the city they love so much and have grown to call home. Love is love is love is love. As long as no animals or children are involved, it doesn't matter what differences a couple or thruple has. As long as love is there, who cares? Even if love isn't there, maybe someone is lonely and another partner is benefiting from money. Who cares? Age, gender, background, ethnicity, religion, it just doesn't matter. As long as there is mutual respect, communication, and an understanding as to what the relationship is, well, damn the naysayers and have fun. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we mix family with pleasure in A Family Affair. It's hard to believe, but it's already time to start thinking about holiday shopping. And something we all want to buy to stay in touch with our friends that are far away are greeting cards. For some adorable Golden Girls-themed Christmas cards, visit Etsy.com and search for the shop Kane and Abel Designs. They not only have multiple options for the holidays, they have birthday, valentines, and bowling shirt-shaped cards. Besides that, there are even a set of soy candles featuring each lady and the cutest set of Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater mugs. So for all of your golden greetings, visit etsy.com shop slash Kane, C-A-I-N, and Abel, that's A-B-L-E, designs. Besquished? Is that like betwixt? It's just old timey, I think. But <laughs> be- everything. Beheaded. <laughs> if I had to guess from, you know, what I've seen of him, I think he's probably very, very intelligent. Hmm. So it's kind of a let me see what I can get away with, maybe. Sounds like it could be <laughs> the Riddler. <laughs> <laughs> For the hundredth time, not everything's about the Riddler. But the showbiz gals start with the theater, of course, by mentioning the beloved pair Richard Rogers and Oscar Hom... <sighs> I hate musicals! Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme Are you going to But I guess they could have called it a... Turbage. Or a cabnip. Those are two of the most disgusting words I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I have to put a content warning now. The closest. The closest. Um, you probably made her feel really good. I certainly did. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be 